This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. If you enjoy Philosophy Bites, please support us. We're currently unfunded and all donations would be gratefully received. For details, go to www.philosophybites.com. Is it ever acceptable to take one life to save five? To discuss this topic, we have an unusual guest who's written about this. You may recognise his voice. David Edmonds, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Good to be here. I've heard great things about the show. The topic we're going to focus on is the trolley problem. Could you just begin by outlining what the trolley problem is? Well, in fact, there are lots of trolley problems. In fact, they've been given a name, trolleyology. These are all thought experiments. And the first and most basic one is you imagine that a train is running out of control. We talk about trolleys, but in fact, it's easier to talk about trains. The train is running out of control. It's going down the track. The brakes have failed. And on the track, ahead of the train, five people are tied. They're going to be killed unless something is done. You're standing by the side of the train. You can turn a lever, which will turn the train down a side track. Unfortunately, on that side track, one person is tied to the track. The question is, should you turn the lever and turn the train onto the side track to kill one person to save the five? What's interesting about that problem is that if you ask people what they should do, pretty much everybody thinks you should turn the train and kill the one to save the five. So that's a straightforward case, difficult, because you'd have to act quickly. You might feel psychologically traumatised by it, but you would be doing the right thing, most people think. If you flick the lever, the train's diverted, it kills one person instead of five. You sacrifice one to save five. That's right. Now, there's another trolley problem known as the fat man problem. This again involves the train running out of control, about to kill five people. This time, you're standing on a footbridge. You're standing next to a very fat man. If you were to push the fat man over the footbridge, the fat man would splatter down on the track below and his bulk would stop the train in its track and therefore save the five people, but the fat man would die. It's important that the man is fat because otherwise the moral thing to do would obviously be to jump over the footbridge yourself and sacrifice yourself to save the five, but you can't do that because you're not fat enough, so the only option is to push the fat man over. So this thought experiment only works if you're slimmer than the fat man. Exactly. And if you ask people what you should do in that case, pretty much everybody believes that it's wrong to push the fat man. So this is the heart of the trolley problem. In both trolley examples that we've set up so far, you have the choice between allowing five to die or killing one. In the first case, almost everybody thinks it's right to turn the train to kill the one and to save the five. But in the second case, almost nobody believes that it's right to push the fat man to save the five. Yet from a consequentialist point of view, somebody who assesses the moral worth of actions by their probable consequences, it looks as if the two cases are similar. Your actions result in five people living who wouldn't otherwise have lived and one person dying who wouldn't otherwise have died. That's exactly the puzzle, and that's a puzzle that has been with the world of philosophy for half a century now. It was first thought up by a woman called Philippa Foote, who was an Oxford-based philosopher, and then was taken up by an American philosopher called Judith Jarvis Thompson, who gave us the fat man. And it remains a puzzle today. What is the explanation for the difference in our intuitions? And it's been like a philosophical crime mystery, really, or, or a logical puzzle that philosophers have been trying to solve for many years. Well, one psychological explanation might be it's pretty easy to pull a lever, but it's quite terrifying to wrestle with a large person, a person larger than you, in a life and death struggle. And it's hopefully, from your point of view, going to result in that other person's death. Right. So what you're offering there is not a philosophical explanation. You're offering a psychological explanation. You're saying 
we're squeamish about the one and we're not squeamish about the other. Well, that's quite plausible. But imagine another thought experiment. Imagine this time that the trolley is going along and it's going to kill the five. Once again, the fat man is on the footbridge. This time, you're not standing next to him. You don't have to push him over. You're exactly where you were in the first scenario, and you can turn a switch, just as you did in the first scenario, where you turned a switch to send it down the sidetrack. This time, again, you can just turn a switch, a simple little arm movement. But what happens now is that a trap door opens, and the fat man comes crashing through, and he lands onto the track in front of the train, and he dies, and he saves the five. How do people respond to this refined fat man case, the case with the trapdoor and the lever. That's the interesting thing. If you ask them that case, they continue to think that it's wrong to kill the fat man, even though this time they're not having to push the fat man. So there's no assault, there's no battery. All they're doing is turning a switch just as they were in the first case. And yet most people continue to think it's wrong to kill the fat man. Not as many as think it's wrong when they actually have to physically push the fat man, but still the vast majority. So there's much more going on than the mere squeamishness of having actually to engage in battery and physical assault. This is really interesting. There's something strange going on here because you're sacrificing one person to save many in all those cases, we seem to have a psychological explanation because it's not very nice to physically push a human being, a living human being, over a a bridge. But that can't be what's at stake because some people, many people in fact, are still quite reluctant to pull the lever that will release the fat man and stop the train. This is the holy grail of trolleyology, trying to come up with an answer to that particular conundrum. And I think the answer lies in what's called the doctrine of double effect, which is a doctrine that was first invented or first discovered by Thomas Aquinas a thousand years ago. This doctrine is useful in lots of cases in the real world, most famously in the case of war. So you often hear American politicians condemning terrorists for intentionally killing civilians, whereas when an American or a Brit might do it, they always call it collateral damage, a terrible euphemism. But what they mean, what they think has moral significance, is that in those cases they might foresee in a particular military operation that some civilians might die if they're trying to attack a military installation, but that's not their intention. They don't intend to kill them. It's a double effect. It's a foreseen consequence, but not an intended consequence. And I think the doctrine of double effect can be used to explain the difference in our intuitions between the various trolley cases. So that's the doctrine of double effect, and it's not uncontroversial, but let's apply it to the fat man case and the spur case in trolley problems and show how that works. To go back to the original spur case, the train is going down, it's going to kill five. You can turn a switch and turn it onto a sidetrack where one person is tied to the sidetrack. Do you intend to kill that one person? Well, imagine what would happen in a possible world. The train went down the sidetrack and miraculously the one person on the sidetrack was able to extricate himself from his ropes and to run away. The train would then continue down its path and it wouldn't kill anybody. What would you think if you're the bystander and you've turned the train? You'd be delighted. You've saved the five, the train is no longer heading towards the five and you haven't had to kill one. Now think about the fat man case. You push the fat man off the footbridge. Imagine the fat man is wearing a big rubber suit and bounces off the track and runs away. Would you be delighted? No. The whole point about pushing the fat man is he needs to get in the way of the train. You intend his death, as it were. If he's not there, the train will trundle on and will kill the five. So it looks like there's a difference in intention between the spur case and the fat man case. You're using the fat man to save the five. You need the fat man's death. You don't need the death of the one person on the track to save the five people. 
But if the fat man managed to stop the train and survived, that would be okay. I'd be quite pleased with that. If he was wearing a rubber suit and the train bounced off him, that would be cool. That's a very good objection, and that's known as the objection of closeness. Let me give you another thought experiment. Imagine that five people are trapped in a cave. The waters are rising. The reason they can't escape the cave is that a fat man is stuck in a hole in the cave. His head is out so he can breathe, but the water is slowly rising and they will all die unless somehow you can get the fat man out of the hole. You have a stick of dynamite. There's one thing you could do. You could blow up the fat man and all five people could be saved. Now, what do you intend to do when you blow up the fat man? Do you intend his death? Well, you could say, no, all I intend to do is blow him up into a thousand pieces so that the five people can escape. I don't want him to die. If miraculously those 1,000 pieces could be stitched back together and the fat man could survive, I'd be delighted. But the problem is, blowing somebody up into a thousand different pieces and killing them are so closely related, it makes a kind of nonsense to say that you want them to be blown up into a thousand pieces but you don't want them to die. But to me, there's a bigger problem here because the doctrine of double effect doesn't seem that plausible. I mean, we might make fine-grained distinctions about whether somebody's more or less culpable, but generally, it's the consequences that matter. We want to save five people so that if somebody who was squeamish in the case of the lever with the fat man and didn't stop the train, you might think they were culpable for not saving the five still. I think the doctrine of double effect can be open to abuse. You can imagine politicians saying oh, I didn't intend to kill the civilians. It was merely a foreseen effect. It's not as bad as if I intended to kill them. The question for philosophers is not how this concept can be abused, but whether it has any philosophical validity. One way to think about it philosophically is, imagine you have a politician who says, oh, I didn't intend to kill the civilians. I merely intended to destroy the military installation. And They've sent a couple of missiles over to destroy the military installation. Imagine the civilians now run away. If the politicians really did intend to kill them, they'd send missiles to where the civilians have now moved to. So by imagining counterfactual scenarios, you can put flesh on the difference between intending something and merely foreseeing it. Isn't this a distinction that's used often by religious people who will say something like, it's okay to administer pain-relieving drugs, opiates, let's say, to somebody who's in great pain with the foreseeable consequence that it will shorten that person's life, but it will be absolutely wrong to deliberately commit an act of euthanasia. It is used by religious people. I mentioned this begins with Thomas Aquinas, and it's become a central part of Catholic theology, but it's now embraced a lot more widely than just by Christianity. It's accepted by many secular philosophers as well. But you're right, it's a doctrine which is used in many cases in the real world, euthanasia being one example, abortion another example, where some people say it's wrong intentionally to kill the fetus, but it's not wrong sometimes to kill the fetus merely as a, as a side effect. And we've mentioned war is another classic example where the doctrine of double effect comes in routinely. The trolley problem's been around for quite a long time. It was first formulated in the 60s, got a new lease of life in the 80s, and it's back now in several different ways. One of the ways is that some people are talking about it in relation to what is natural and universal in human beings, that we have some kind of innate moral grammar. That's right. A parallel has been drawn between Chomsky's work in linguistics and works of people like John Mikhail in philosophy. And people like John McCall argue that we probably do have a universal moral grammar and that the trolley problems provide some evidence for this. 
And there have been tests around the world. There have been tests between men and women, between the old and the young, between the rich and the poor, between people who live in cities and people who live in the countryside. And the remarkable thing is that intuitions are roughly the same wherever you are, however old you are, whether you're eight years old or whether you're 80 years old. And that does seem to indicate that there's some kind of universal moral grammar. Another new boost to discussion of trolley problems has come from neuroscience. So neuroscientists have begun to take scans of our brains when we're discussing and thinking about these moral problems. And they've worked out which bits of the brains, very, very crudely put, it's much more complicated than that, but very crudely put, which bits of the brains light up when we're pushing the fat man over or when we're turning the train in the first case. The really interesting question for philosophy is what you do with this stuff. So we're finding out all this factual information about how the brain works morally, what happens if a bit of the brain is damaged and whether subsequently we're more likely to come to utilitarian judgments as a result of an accident, say, or a lesion. But what does that mean? What are the implications? Just because we know how it works doesn't tell us, or does it, and this is the crude question, doesn't tell us what we should do in the moral cases. There's some evidence that the calculating part of the brain is the bit of the brain that does the work in the original spur case. And the emotional part of the brain is what is holding you back from pushing the fat man over the footbridge. Now, one very eminent philosopher, Peter Singer, who's perhaps the world's most famous utilitarian, has argued that we should privilege our analytic calculating side and that the neuroevidence is evidence for us having made a mistake in our reluctance to push the fat man. But we could argue quite the opposite. People who've got damaged the emotional part of their brain are more willing to push the fat man. And we might want to say, well, that's evidence that pushing the fat man is wrong. After all, these are damaged patients. So I think over the next few years, this is going to be the most interesting part of moral philosophy, to see how the empirical work finds its way into normative questions about how we should behave. Aren't these trolley problems really just a bit like chess problems? They're interesting, there's a solution, you want to solve them, but they don't really impact on real life. Well, they are fun, but that's not necessarily inconsistent with them being useful. I mean, the great advantage of these trolley problems is that real-life cases are full of background noise, white noise. They've got many things going on. They're very complex, and it's not quite clear what's doing the work in our intuitions. And the great thing about the trolley problem is that you clear all that out, you clear all the rubbish out, and you're left with this pure trolley problem. And then you can begin to manipulate your intuitions by changing one variable or the other to see what's really going on. But does it really have any practical application once you've tweaked your thought experiment and come up with the conclusions and worked out the principles how do you get back to real life the idea is that once you've found a principle or principles which seem to explain these different trolley problems you can then remove them from the thought experiment and apply them to the real world you can say well maybe the doctrine of double effect is something that we should take seriously and if it's something that we should take seriously this might help when it comes to thinking about what we should do in a hospital, for example, or what we should do in warfare, or what we should do when it comes to questions about euthanasia. We've identified a principle that we think might be helpful in the trolley problems, and we can transplant that principle and put it back into the real world. So could you give an example of a real-life case which was, in effect, a trolley problem? Well, one interesting example is from World War II, where there was a big dispute in the British cabinet between one cabinet minister and Churchill. And needless to say, Churchill won, as he always did in these disputes. The V-1 missiles were being fired from the continent and they were landing 
to the south of London, hitting less densely populated areas. They were intended to hit the centre of town. And Britain had a number of double agents. And the question was whether they should use these double agents to send back false information to the Nazis, to tell the Nazis that it was hitting the centre of town, or indeed hitting north of London, with the hope that they would then adjust the trajectory so that the missiles would fall even further south and kill even fewer people. Well, the cabinet minister who was opposed to Churchill said, we can't do that, we can't play God. If we do that, other people will be killed. We'll have blood on our hands, we'll be responsible for that. Churchill, in that case, took the very utilitarian decision that actually that was exactly what we should do, that we should be trying to minimise the loss of life. And this is a very, very good parallel with the first trolley case, the train that's going to kill five unless we divert it to kill the one. So in the trolley problem, I think Churchill would share the intuition of most of the rest of us that it may be acceptable to kill one person in order to save five lives. David Edmonds, thank you very much. Thanks, Nigel. I've enjoyed it. I hope you'll have me back one day. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.